Welcome to another episode of Latina Latino Linux News. My name is Monty Rossetti. This week, El Tecolote contributor Johanna Miyaki speaks to SFMTA director Jeffrey Tomlin. Many of us who work and live in San Francisco have probably heard contradicting stories about what exactly the Muni restoration plan entails as we try to navigate ourselves through the COVID pandemic. On this episode, we get all of your transit questions answered by the director of transportation himself. Hello, my name is Johanna Miyaki, and this is Radio Teco. I'm here with SFMTA Director Jeffrey Tomlin to talk about the Muni Restoration Plan. Thank you for taking time to talk with me today, Director Tomlin. Thank you for having me, Johanna. I'm excited you're here. We're going to have a lot of good things, I hope, to share and be able to really let our listeners uh, get a better understanding of what's happening with Muni. To start us off, I pulled some stats from the uh Federal Transit Administration's database. And they're unfortunately from May, but I just wanted to give us sort of a jumping off point. So um, the information, I think SFMTA self-reports this, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, so, but we're audited uh, every month. Yeah, I saw some very dry multi-page reports about that, that I kind of <laughs> eyes glazed over and didn't finish it. But I did pull this. <laughs> so 68% of transit uh, vehicle service hours were operated in May of 2021 compared to before the pandemic, and 36% of the trips taken by passengers in May of 2021 compared to pre-pandemic. So that was kind of like a just distilled version of those May numbers. Um, So this is sort of a chicken and the egg question, right? Ridership is down and services are down. What what do we do? Um, You know, obviously during the pandemic, that made sense that those two things would happen as we re-enter and even with that um, question mark hanging over us with with different things, right? The Delta variants. And I know that um, transit still is masking, has been throughout, but now they're calling for more um, to return to indoor masking and things like that. So I'm not sure how that um, plays into it. So I'd love to hear sort of maybe give us um, a bird's eye view of your goal, if I, if this is still accurate, is to return to 85% of pre-pandemic service. Is that right? Service levels? Well, my goal is to get to 110%. Right. Eventually. But the, the first best, <laughs> the first benchmark was 85, right? By That's August. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you could give us a bird's eye view of what that looks like, maybe what's coming back, what's not coming back until dot, 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 that kind of thing. Sure. So, uh, so that's a very, very big question, and this is right. it's the sort of topic that we can talk about for hours. Right. So, do you want me to do you want me to frame up our budget reality or I how think we're would be going a great about? Great place to start um, talking about because I know one of the big issues has been um, staffing, right? Having yes. enough drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, getting them trained and certified and ready to take on as you restore service. So yeah, maybe that would be a great place to start. 
Okay. Let me actually start with a little bit of additional context, because I think many of our writers don't understand the unique constraints that Muni faces. So the SFMTA was started by the voters back in 1999 under Prop E, which designed the SFMTA to be financially self-sufficient. So we're separate from the rest of city government. We get almost all of our revenue from three sources, our transit fares, our parking fees, and then a fixed amount that we get every year from the city's general fund. Um, we're also, because we're a municipal agency, we're not allowed to borrow money for our operations. Our budget has to balance every single year. And if we run out of money, we can do two things. One is we gut transit maintenance, which has been a pattern that the agency has done for decades. The other, if we really run out of money, is we cannot pay our workers, um, which is just the catastrophic scenario that we are trying to avoid. We have to manage our limited resources so that we don't end up in a situation where we have to have dramatic cuts to our service and to our workforce. So everything that we are doing is trying to manage our limited resources in order to provide the best service we possibly can to the public while looking for new revenue. We are incredibly grateful that the federal government um, will be giving us a uh, billion dollars, which is an awful lot of money. Um, we've already spent half of that simply avoiding layoffs up until now. And the remainder has to be spread out over probably the next three or four years. Most other American transit agencies, particularly in the suburbs, they will be at full recovery by the end of this year. They are largely funded through sales tax and through other sources that were not hit hard by the pandemic. But here in San Francisco, because of the unique way that Muni is funded, um, we're expecting significant losses, at least until 2025. And so we need to take our one year worth of relief funding and spread that out over about three or four years. That's, that's our financial challenge while we, again, continue to do the best we can um, delivering service. So our approach throughout the pandemic has really been focusing on a couple of factors. One is um, paying attention to the data around where people are actually going. COVID revealed the geography of essential workers. Our travel demand patterns today are vastly different than they were um, a, a year and a half ago. Um, and so we've needed to redirect the services largely to um, where our Latinx and Asian and African-American writers are and our working class writers and our service industry writers, completely different than two years ago where most of our writers were heading to the financial district. The financial district is empty. The other thing that has changed is our renewed focus, or really our new focus, on equity. So we have been focusing on all of our lowest income neighborhoods and on neighborhoods where people have the fewest mobility choices. Um, we're actually delivering faster, more frequent, and more reliable service um, on our core lines in our lower income neighborhoods than we did pre-COVID. Um, lines like the 14 Mission 
um, are running more quickly, about 20% faster, about 20% more reliable, and way more than 20% more frequent than they did pre-COVID. Um, and as a result of that, our ridership on the 14 Rapid on the weekends is currently up to 94% of pre-COVID ridership, even as our overall ridership is only at about 37% of where we were pre-COVID. So the folks in neighborhoods like the Mission and the Outer Mission and the Excelsior and Viz Valley and Bayview, they are taking transit just as much as they were pre-COVID. And we, we need to continue to really, really serve those neighborhoods well, even as we try to bring back the whole rest of the system. We need to recognize that San Francisco has changed and that um, our values have changed in order to emphasize equity. That's really um, very interesting because I was actually going to ask you about that. The focus on which lines would come back first. Has that changed, you know, after you've discovered this data, realizing that, you know, yeah, no one is downtown, but we do have like the F car on the uh, Market Street. Is that yep. that's up and running? That's more like for tourists, I would imagine, right? Like who takes the F train uh, or the streetcars? So how do you how do you balance that? How do you decide? Yep. So that's a really good question. So part of it is simply based upon our workforce. Um, so we we had enough um, workers, enough train mechanics and F line operators that we could bring back partial F line service. We couldn't simply just put all of those train mechanics to maintain our buses. Because those so are we, different types of drivers, then, right? That's so somebody right. who drives the F train or the trolley car up Powell is very different from someone who drives a Muni M-Line KJ train. There's a little bit more similarity for the operators, but it's very different on the maintenance side. So oh, somebody okay. who maintains a train is very different than somebody who maintains And a we bus. need to maintain the trains to run them. And we need to maintain them, <laughs> right. <laughs> Makes so, sense. So we, we were able to restart uh, some F-Line service. We're a long ways from full F-Line service because in addition to serving our passengers and advancing equity, we also have a profound responsibility to help restart the San Francisco economy. And the F-Line trains and our cable cars are exceedingly popular. Um, we need to bring back the visitor economy in order to stabilize our financial base so that we can continue serving San Francisco residents. Um, so all of those, those services are important to us, but obviously our highest priority is providing transit service to San Francisco residents who need it the most. And that's where we have some significant tension. So we've, uh, during COVID, we stripped everything back to our what we called our essential lines uh, because uh, we had to protect our workforce and a significant share of our workforce needed to stay at home because they had the sniffles and that meant, you know, like we wanted you to stay home so that you don't spread COVID. Right. So we stripped things back to the bare essentials. And then every quarter we have reevaluated that to expand service based upon staff availability. So first step was essential network. Our next step was serving uh, what we called our equity neighborhoods in our equity um, uh, strategy for Muni to make sure that we prioritized service restoration to the neighborhoods that needed, to the, needed it the most. Now what we're doing in August is filling in the holes to make sure that all San Franciscans are two to three blocks from a Muni line. Um, and uh, a very important component of our August restoration is serving schools. 
Um, so we've prioritized the lines that serve schools, including critical institutions like San Francisco State. It's one of the reasons why we're so glad that we were able to bring back um, the M line trains to be able to serve state. Yeah, I actually live in the in the OMI, so the M train coming back is a great thing. Um, and yeah, uh, as of state though, are they returning to full class schedules? I wonder, like, uh, would that impact the? Um, I don't mean that we don't need it. The M line serves a lot of community members here that need it. It's a lifeline for seniors. We have a lot of seniors here. Um, for them to be able to access like day-to-day groceries, doctors, you know, and people getting to work and getting to school, um, you know, community members, there's a lot of families here. But um, with SF State service, like if there's not a huge uh, demand because they're not on campus for classes. Oh, they're um, coming back on campus. They are. Uh, okay, good. Oh, yes. That's yeah. Great. And that's, that's why we were racing to try to train new rail operators in order to be able to restart the M line. Oh, that's great. Because I wasn't sure what the plan was. It seems like it's a moving target with City College and State and all of these schools kind of deciding if they're going to, they're offering a lot of online hybrid, but those all factor in, right? All of these things factor in like how things are, how, how businesses or schools or institutions are going to operate. So um, that kind of, I'd like to go back to something when you talk about rebuilding the, you know, restarting the economy, um, the parklet program, the mayor's parklet yes. program. How does that, it's calling for 2,000 or, or, or more um, small businesses, right, to be able to use the sidewalks and parking spots on the street for their parklets. How does this impact the Muni restoration plan? Does it, did you have to rethink things when that was announced in May? Um, I think it was in May, right? Um, how, how do you... How do you put that part of the puzzle piece in and make yeah. it fit? So this is one of the many new things that we had to pivot around uh, during the, the, the COVID period. So on the one hand, uh, the, uh, the parklets in the parking lane um, take up our metered parking spaces that we get revenue from. So we're fortunate that our parking policies in San Francisco um, require that we charge the lowest parking fee that ensures one or two parking spaces are available on every block. So although we've lost a number of, you know, about a thousand on-street parking spaces, um, we're now able to adjust the parking meter rates to partly compensate for the direct losses from the parking meter. We're also very happy again to support San Francisco's overall economic recovery because the biggest source of Muni's revenue is the city's general fund. And the city needs its general fund to recover uh, with the support of small businesses that drive the San Francisco economy. So many of the economic issues that we were facing um, have these sort of interesting feedback loops, all of which we needed to promote in order to balance um, our revenue and support the larger economic recovery. We've also been kind of tough on a lot of merchants. Um, we uh, we don't want parklets at our bus stops, and we have had to push back hard on several neighborhood commercial districts about closing um, commercial streets where our main muni lines are running. Um, so again, we've struggled to try to find that right balance between supporting our passengers, bringing in the right amount of revenue for our own recovery, and supporting the city's economic recovery as well.
yeah, that's not, uh, it's a tough formula because the, while we want to support our restaurants and bring those businesses back, yeah, it, I didn't even think about the parking revenue, but I was thinking about those bus stop lanes and how, you know, they're obstructed with the parklets. So how would you be able to maintain lines of service? Um, there was, a, I read somewhere about the Hayes, the 21 Hayes, is that going to stay in service or is that one that might be removed because of the parklet? So the 21 Hayes is one of about a dozen lines um, that we don't yet have the resources to restore in August. So as soon as we do our August 15 service restoration, we begin a major planning process to figure out what is our next round of service changes in January. Um, so our, the, the stabilization place that we get to with our current resources is about 85% of pre-COVID service. So the question is, how do we allocate that in order to best serve San Francisco during its, during its recovery? And more importantly, if we were able to get to 100 or 110% of the revenue that we need, what would we do with that? Because we know that we need to go to the voters in 2022 in order to have any hope of being able to fully restore service. And we need something to tell the voters. One, why is there a problem with Muni's finances? And two, if we had additional resources, how would we spend that in order to create the greatest possible public good and also to account for the dramatic ways in which travel has changed in San Francisco over the last few decades. It's been 30 years since we've done, we've really looked at the Muni system. So uh, travel patterns are very, very different. And in many ways, our values are different than they were 30 years ago. So are there ways in which we should modernize the system in order to account for those changes? And maybe the answer is no. We're not going into this with any certainty about what the plan is, what we're wanting to do is to evaluate different options um, and then have uh, conversations with community members about how do we how do we deal with the inevitable tensions between um, do we provide really, really frequent, reliable service that's two to three blocks from everyone, or do we provide less frequent and less reliable service that is one to two blocks from everyone? And people will have different answers to that question. Um, for people with mobility impairments or people living in very steep neighborhoods, they may very much want to prioritize service that's a block away, even if it's only coming every half hour. Um, for people who, uh, you know, want to get downtown fast, they will make a, a they will they will set a different priority. Um, and so, um, ultimately, the MTA Board of Directors will need to make that difficult policy call. There's no correct answer. Um, and we're looking forward to having a robust conversation with the city about what's the best shape for Muni for the future. So just because a, a line or lines aren't in the August restoration plan doesn't mean they're not coming back. It means that you're still trying to figure out how to bring them back and factor all of these these things and these criteria. That's what, right. Right. Yeah. So, so So we have not... And we do not plan to permanently eliminate any of the muni lines that are currently not running. Good. We are That's dispelling to... myth number one. There's a lot of <laughs> yes. talk about lots of lines not coming back. So right. I'm glad that not you said that. Not coming back in August, maybe coming back in January, but right. subject to um, some detailed planning in order to figure out what's the, you know, what's the right uh, 
uh, list of priorities? How frequently should they be running? And to what degree should we cut frequency in our main lines in order to restore service on those parallel lines? So um, I want to touch back on something you mentioned too about, you know, our our transit habits have changed but and sort of our values about how we use space and how um, transit factors in. Let's talk about the road closures, like the street calming kind of measures like uh, slow streets and how that factors in to the plan, to the restoration plan, how it might help or hinder, but the road closures like the Great Highway or MLK in Golden Gate Park, are they here to stay? I think there was talk about making those things permanent, um, you know, and there's tons of slow streets that popped up during the shutdown and people really enjoy them. But again, it causes a lot of not only for, you know, mass transit, but just in general, like getting around. If you can't drive down the street to get to your house, you know, it's, it's closed off. You can get there, but it just makes it a little more difficult. What are your thoughts on that? So let's so first I want to distinguish between um, streets that are closed to cars like JFK in Eastern Golden Gate Park and Great Highway versus the residential neighborhood slow streets. Okay. So our residential neighborhood slow streets are designed to welcome everyone. Everyone is welcome to drive on a residential neighborhood slow street. But what we ask is that everyone respect everyone else's right to use that street space. That if you're driving on a slow street, just drive slowly, be respectful to people on their scooters and on foot and walking their dogs and pushing their wheelchairs. and that may be happening in the middle of the street. And you know what? That's okay. On this street, that's okay. Because what we have found is that many of our slow streets have been so much more popular than we had ever dreamt possible. Uh, streets like Sanchez and Page, um, Shotwell on the Mission Street, uh, in the Mission District. Um, People are using these streets in ways that we could have never predicted. There's wonderful art that is out in the street. People are doing concerts in the middle of the street. Uh, people are using the slow streets to, uh, you know, to walk or bike very long distances from one neighborhood to another. So we're um, trying to find ways of um, seeing how we might transition the slow streets um, in the post-pandemic period. How do we design them in a way that signals that make sure that we're really signaling to everyone, no, no, y'all are welcome. Just please be kind to each other. Right. And you're welcome to play in the street. I think that's a good point that you make. Um, a lot of uh, the residents on certain slow streets have sort of taken ownership. And they're like, no, no, no cars. Like they put the signs up like that you can't drive down there. Um, and, and that's fine, but I just mean, I think it's become really popular and to the point too, where there's a, more of a demand, but mm-hmm. there are certain places you just can't have slow streets, right? That's right. Yeah. So our slow streets are only on very low volume residential streets that are not a part of our arterial roadway network. We wanted to make sure that our slow streets do not impact traffic congestion and do not impact emergency service response time. Those are two critical criteria. And we're fortunate, given the weirdness of the San Francisco street network, that we actually have a lot of streets that aren't a part of the, you know, the flow of regional traffic. And so those are the streets that we've chosen. And that's one of the reasons why they're so successful. And will there be um, room for people to sort of request more? Like, what's the process to ask for a slow street? Like, go to your district supervisor, then they go to you. 
So we have a website. So if you search SFMTA, Slow Streets, um, there's a page called Post-Pandemic Slow Streets, oh. where we're doing detailed evaluation of all of our existing slow streets, um, as well as um, taking feedback for, for neighborhoods that um, uh, want uh, new slow streets, particularly neighborhoods that um, we have underserved. Um, it's really our priority. Um, and the feedback that we're getting, we're getting very different feedback from different neighborhoods. Um, for example, in the Bayview District, we did a lot of engagement with community around slow streets. And what we discovered is that people in the Bayview were basically said, I don't know what on earth you're thinking, suggesting that we can just walk around in the middle of our street. <laughs> what we want is for the traffic to be slower so that our kids are safe. Can you invest instead in more conventional traffic calming? So in the Bayview, we've pivoted in a different direction based upon community response. In some other neighborhoods, we're asking the question, how can we connect our slow streets together so that you can go from any neighborhood in San Francisco with your 12-year-old daughter or your 80-year-old grandma, and you can take a scooter or skateboard or bike or wheelchair and travel safely and joyfully without ever worrying about being run down by a car. Like, could you imagine a San Francisco that was like that? It's possible. And that's what we're trying to imagine um, now that we're starting this recovery period. So that brings me to back to the road closures like the Great Highway and JFK and Golden Gate Park. What's the uh, what's the plan? Are, yes. are those going to stay closed to, uh, for people to enjoy? There's, I think, obviously, as with everything, people on both sides of the argument. I mean, the Great Highway is out near my sort of in my neck of the woods. It's not exactly like someplace that you use for that, like to get around, like unless you're going somewhere specifically in Ocean Beach or maybe going to hit the Skyline Boulevard from there. It's sort of out of the way. So I can kind of see the appeal when I see people out there enjoying it, biking, kids out on the road. It's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually been... Uh the um, one of the most highly visited visitor destinations in San Francisco over the last year, more popular than Chrissy Field. So the Great Highway is a big question. And we're currently doing detailed analysis to figure out, OK, what do we do with this? And more importantly, how do we mitigate the unintended negative consequences that residents on the west side have experienced? So residents in the Sunset District have complained about spillover traffic, about bad motorist behavior on their residential streets. Um, and they've complained as well that suddenly Ocean Beach is 10 times more popular than it was pre-COVID <laughs> and people are like parking in their neighborhood and this is upsetting. Um, similarly, you know, the Great Highway, because it doesn't actually really connect very well to the sunset, it's largely used by people in the outer Richmond traveling to and from Northern San Mateo County. So how do we allow people who need to drive from the outer Richmond to, you know, Daly City um, to make that trip. And um, what we found is that, uh, again, because of the way the Sunset District grid is weird, we have six lanes of Sunset Boulevard that, that terminate into the two lanes of MLK in Golden Gate Park, which is currently closed to cars. And as a result of that, there's a huge backup that occurs on Chain of Lakes, Chain of Lakes Drive. 
So what we're looking at right now is some ways of making it easier for Richmond District residents to connect to Sunset Boulevard, where there's plenty of traffic capacity. So we're, we're proposing to do some um, experiments later this summer and fall to see, can we actually mitigate some of those traffic challenges as well as the um, spillover problems that the Sunset District um, is experiencing by better connecting the street grid um, on the west side. So stay tuned on that. We're, we're trying to do that study very quickly so that uh, we can inform a final decision. Um, the final decision about Great Highway will be made by the Board of Supervisors. It's, a, it's actually a street that is controlled by the Recreation and Parks Department. Oh, okay. That's yep. interesting. I didn't know. And that. then we have a different process for JFK in Eastern Golden Gate Park. So in the Eastern part of Golden Gate Park during COVID, we took the um, Sunday closure that had been occurring for decades and made that closure seven days a week. So from Transverse Drive to Stanyon or to Kizar, um, we created that space for social distancing. And it's also been exceedingly popular seven days a week. But it's also created some problems. So uh, there were uh, nearly 500 parking spaces on that part of JFK, including a lot of disabled parking. So we know that we need to more than just mitigate the disabled parking loss. We need to replace all of those disabled parking spaces in order to prioritize people who have no choice but being able to drive and to make sure those spaces are proximate to all of the key destinations in the eastern part of the park. We also need to deal with um, equity considerations. So it's easy for somebody like me to be able to bike to Golden Gate Park or somebody from the Sunset District to walk there. But if I'm coming from the Mission or from Bayview, it's hard to get to Golden Gate Park. So how do we provide a comprehensive parking solution for the park? It's sort of like a college campus in many ways. And we need to manage the mobility system to create both safety and the sort of joyous park experience, but also accessibility for everyone, including and particularly the people with the fewest mobility choices. So the Golden Gate Park work is more like, it's sort of like a college campus transportation plan to figure out how do we serve the institutions and their employees? How do we serve the full array of park visitors? And how do we put first and foremost the people with the fewest choices. Sounds easy. It should be no problem <laughs> to figure that out. Um, so you touched on something that I wanted to ask about. You're a cyclist, I guess. So what are the plans for, like, there's been a lot, an increase in bike lanes um, and use of bike shares, I think, are up. Is that part of the plan also to how would you address bikes? Yeah. So, you know, San Francisco is growing rapidly. Um more jobs, more people living here, and our streets are not getting any wider. We're no longer demolishing neighborhoods to widen highways. So our challenge in San Francisco as the city grows is figuring out how do we make the transportation system more efficient and particularly more geometrically efficient. So cars are very convenient arguably the most convenient mode of transportation ever invented. They're awesome. I can come and go whenever I please. I can store my stuff. I've got my tunes. Excellent. However, when I drive a car, I take up more than 10 times as much roadway space as I do when I ride a munibus or when I ride a bike or a skateboard or really basically any other mode of transportation. So our task here is it's, it's kind of paradoxical where in order to make it 
possible for people to continue to be able to drive when they need to drive. I need to make it safer and more joyful and more convenient for other people to not drive when they don't have to drive because muni and walking and biking are 10 times more space efficient than driving a car. So what we've been trying to do is to figure out, all right, how would we create a network of bike facilities that feel safe, not just for the, you know, 28 year old white dudes in Lycra, but for everyone. <laughs> and that means a protected facility. It means being protected from traffic, either on a slow street or on a parking protected bike lane. So what we're trying to do is to figure out how can we knit together a safe bike network that is friendly for families without um, harming the ability for people to continue to drive around the city. And our teams have been super creative with that. In fact, uh, over the last two years, we've built 20 new miles of protected bike lanes. We've also installed during COVID um, over 40 miles of slow streets. And so we're close to actually allowing those networks to be able to tie together so that normal folks with their families, if they wanted to, could feel safe hopping on a bike or a skateboard or whatever in order to get across town. That um, brings me to a question. So you are self-proclaimed on your Twitter feed. You uh, refer to yourself as a transportation nerd, right? So <laughs> yes. You came into this position just months before the pandemic, <laughs> right? Yes, so I noticed that. how did that change? Because I'm sure you had a vision of what you were going to do when you came into the position and then everything got turned on its head when the pandemic, you know, unfolded and the shutdown happened. How did that, you know, and the state that it was already in, I'm sure that there were already challenges in place. How did this change your vision? Do you feel like you've been able to find a, a way to still maintain some of the ideas that you had about the future for Muni? Because obviously you were thinking about, uh, in the conversation we're having right now, I can tell that you're thinking about how to evolve with what the needs are now versus what we've been using since, I don't know, what was it, 19, in the 1900s when they started the, the train system. So, yep. yeah. Well, so back in the middle of 2019, I was pretty certain that I did not want this job. It is <laughs> arguably the second most thankless job in my entire industry, um, second only to the New York MTA job reporting to Governor Cuomo. Um, and then I, well, frankly, I went on a 10-day Buddhist meditation retreat. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow or another in that retreat, I realized, you know, I, I was at the point in my career where I had nothing to lose. And I realized that it was time to commit myself to service. And that is why I ended up taking this job in December of 2019, which turned out to be a remarkably good motivation for surviving March of 2020 when the lockdown occurred. So I realized, okay, everything is upended. My agency is experiencing um, the worst health crisis than it has in a hundred years. 
the worst financial crisis by far than it had in its entire history and a racial justice reckoning um, from work uncompleted um, about 50 years ago. So, <laughs> um, you know, okay, this is the most important possible time to simply serve. And I'm fortunate, um, my husband takes very good care of me. We do not have kids. I can work 80 and 90 hour weeks every week, although apparently not for, you know, 18 straight months. Um, and, and use this series of compounded crises in order to um, do the best that we possibly can by you know, for the communities that we serve and to, and to not, as has happened so often in Muni's past history, to paper over our problems, um, but rather to confront them directly. That is so refreshing. I think that um, another thing that you refer to yourself on in your Twitter profile is a bureaucrat and a hospice worker for dying ideas, which I thought was funny also. But it really comes through in what you're saying now and talking about being in service to the community, like taking this position, it, it probably is very thankless and um, difficult. And there's probably lots of things that keep you up at night. Um, but you're active on Twitter and I like to watch all of your, <laughs> your comments there. <laughs> and there was one that you made, it was today, I think. Um, and you were talking about, you know, that it says we're eager to get to 110% of pre-COVID service or our riders support SF's recovery and slash greenhouse gases, but we need your help advocating to, um, for the funding to allow us to do so. And someone replied about something about eliminating the 47 and making the mission the only destination reachable on the Van Ash corridor. So I wanted to let you dispel that because you said earlier that there were no lines that were not coming back. So do you want to answer that here right. today? We're working as fast as we can to restore as much service as we can. Um, if I simply wanted to be popular, um, I would uh, be accelerating our hiring and I would spend all of our one-time funding this year in order to have um, an amazing transit system. But doing that puts the viability of our service at risk and our workforce at risk. Um, I knew that signing up for this job, to do it right, I have to be deeply unpopular. I've got to frankly, be responsible with an incredibly fragile agency, knowing that I'm going to be in this job for at least another three and a half years when my contract runs out. And I need to deliver a stronger, more stable, and more productive transit system than I inherited. For decades, this agency has been disinvested in. For decades, we have delivered more service um, than we could afford. And we did so by gutting maintenance. Our train control system is managed off of five and a quarter inch floppy disks with technology from the late 80s and the 90s. Um, I have entire maintenance divisions that have 40% vacancy rates. If you've wondered why Muni can seem so unreliable and decrepit, it's because for 50 years, we have not properly funded maintenance of the system. 
um, because funding service is more popular, at least in the short run. So do you think there's a, a, an argument to be made about the way SFMTA is funded then, to, that it needs to change? Oh, heck yeah. So about every five years, San Francisco <laughs> asks itself, why is Muni so slow and unreliable? And there's a big public effort that does a big audit and you know people shake their fists. And every five years, the city concludes, oh, I see, Muni has a dire structural deficit. Every year, its revenues decline while its expenses rise um, you know, with the cost of delivering service. And so the you know, that happened back in 2015, and that resulted in a new funding measure going on the ballot in 2016, which the voters turned down. In 2019, there was another effort called the Muni Reliability Working Group, sponsored by the Board of Supervisors. They delivered their report just as I was starting, and indeed came up with the exact same conclusion. Muni's basic finances are broken, and it needs a new source of revenue in order to be able to deliver the transit service that San Francisco needs. So again, we're asking for the city's help. Help us find a path towards financial sustainability. That's what we need. We're eager to deliver more service. I, like, I, I'm a total transit nerd. <laughs> I want to deliver 200% of service, and I want to make it free to the riders. But in order to do that, I need a way of paying for it. So where do you want to, where do you think you can find those funds? Where do you think it should come from? Yep. Well, so that's what we're trying to figure out. Um, in our world, most of the um, uh, well, actually, let, let me let me say one thing first. In order to stabilize Muni, we need stable sources of revenue. So there are certain kinds of revenue, like real estate transfer tax, which are great if there's a lot of changeover of big commercial properties. But then when you enter a recession, there's suddenly no sale of property and your revenue collapses to zero. What we need is stable sources of revenue that we can predict from one year to the next. So our, you know, we'd like to change slowly. We'd like things to be stable. So our favorite source of revenue would be something like a property tax or a parcel tax or a square footage tax that would stay the same, you know, every year and hopefully rise with uh, the cost of delivering service. Um, in order to get revenue like that, though, we need two thirds vote. So what I want isn't as important as what the voters are willing to support and two thirds of the voters are willing to support. So there's all kinds of things that we can chase, but the only things that are relevant are the ones that um, get voter support. Right. And and asking for taxes, increase in taxes is probably not popular. Not going to do you any favors of popularity. That's right. And especially, especially not right now as so many businesses and residents are struggling to recover from, again, the worst financial crisis of their lives, at least since the Great Depression. Yeah. Maybe it needs to be carved out of something existing. I don't know. That's not what I do. But uh, <laughs> um, if you have time, we're going to, we I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I did have some questions from community members that maybe I'll just grab two. If you don't mind, we'll answer those and wrap yeah, it sure, up. Have time. So Zach from Ocean View asks, the OMI is a bit of a gap in the city for Bay Wheels bike share stations. We're hilly, but they're new, they're their new e-bikes are great for getting around our neighborhood when you can find one. Um, there could be many locations for stations like the Minion Lovey Ward Park. Any plans to add more stations? Thank you. 
Yes, in fact, we were just speaking yesterday with Supervisor Safahi. Um, Bay Wheels wants to add more stations throughout District 11. Um, and uh, the best way to support that is to contact Supervisor Safahi's office, um, who's been really um, helping us to identify um, sites for new Bay Wheels e-bikes. Uh, I understand the severe topography of the OMI. Um, so the, I'll take one more question for you. This comes from Mark in Merced Extension Triangle. All rapid lines are running with the exception of the 28R, which is service the Merced Extension Triangle with a stop at Alamany and Arch. That would service the new H-Mart supermarket and take students from the OMI area north of Brotherhood and the Merced Extension Triangle to stops along 19th Avenue for Lowell and Lincoln High School. Why isn't that rapid line returning in August for students and residents? Or is it? Uh, hold on a second. The 28R. Uh, oh, the 28R. Um, so the 28R um, and a new rapid for the 29 um, remain high priorities for us. Um, we were not able to afford that um, in our August service restoration, but those are among the core questions that are going to be on our list for the service planning work that we will do in the fall for the um, winter 2022 service restoration. Um, in the meantime, um, we have done some reroutes of community service routes like um, the 57 to add that to the 54 in order to be able to serve the new H-Mart um, there on uh, Alamany Boulevard, as well as connecting into the Daly City um, BART station. So it'll be some service improvement. Um, and of course, the 28 local um, is providing uh, full service um, already. Very, that's good news then for Mark. I hope that he is happy with that. So um, is there anything you want to say as we wrap this up um, that you want San Franciscans to know or understand about the future of Muni? Um, you know, like what's... I guess, and you've said a lot of it throughout our conversation today, but if you just wanted to leave them with one piece or this is where you need to go to um, learn more about this or advocate for that, like, tell us how, how can your San Franciscans help themselves to improve the future of Muni? Well, there's no better way for reducing greenhouse gas emissions or advancing social equity um, or creating economic opportunity for San Franciscans or driving the San Francisco economy, then supporting Muni. Um, we are eager to deliver the transit system that San Francisco needs. We just need the resources in order to be able to do so. Um, in order to help, um, stay in touch with us. Um, you can use the SFMTA website and sign up for updates on any project or any line in San Francisco. Uh, you can get uh, that emailed to you uh, or sign up for text messages. Um, our online services are pretty good. And also the other way that can be really effective is to engage with your um, neighborhood association um, or engage with any of the advocacy organizations. Uh, it, uh, it's a lot easier for us with our limited resources um, to um, have robust engagement with, um, with you know, through collective action. Um, we really rely on community-based organizations in order to help us figure out how to strike the right balance. Um, what are community priorities? How do we adjust our services in order to really meet community needs? Um, so that's, uh, that's my advice to you. The other um, opportunity as well is to work with your district uh, supervisor um, in order to help them advocate 
um, for the funding that we need in order to deliver the service that all San Franciscans want. Well, thank you so much, Director Tumlin, again, for talking with me today. We'll be sure to include some links um, on the episode on our webpage for all these things you mentioned. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, things that we can all do, and I hope that this conversation helps people kind of understand a little bit more about the complicated process that we're in. Um, But it's good to hear that we have someone in service to our community at SFMTA. So thank you. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? That's all. I I think think we've got it all covered. Thank you so much again. My name's Johanna Miyaki. This is Radio Teco. You can find all of our episodes on the Radio Teco webpage and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Radio Teco, the podcast of El Tecolote, California's longest-running bilingual community Latino newspaper. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and are looking for more of our content, please visit our website, eltecolote.org. And if you value bilingual storytelling and would like to support our next 50 years of community journalism, please consider making a donation or sign up to volunteer. 